Hey y'all! Welcome to Wander, Forage, and Wildcraft. I'm Abby Artemisia of The Wander School. Each episode, I bring you stories, tips, and tricks from foragers and wildcrafters around the world to empower you on your wild path. Please remember to practice safe foraging by being 100% positive of your identification before consuming anything wild. Happy listening! Come on, everyone, and gather around. Listen to the soothing in this sound. I'm here to tell you that medicine don't come from a pill, it grows in the ground. The medicine we need grows all around us. Hey, y'all, it's me, Abby Artemisia, and I am so excited to be back here with you. And so excited for our guest today. And this all came about very serendipitously. So I, yeah, um, gosh, there's so much I want to say, but I'm going to let our guest introduce herself in just a moment and say that we were introduced by a mutual friend of mine who is local here, my friend Meredith, and has her company Reverence Botanicals and grows herbs for folks with Lyme issues. And I was researching Lyme at the time, Lyme disease, which I know that word disease is, (laughs) can be debatable and controversial. So sometimes I don't use that word, but we're going to have a whole nother episode about that with our guests right now. But that is the way that I found her. And then I started looking at her Instagram account and found out that she's doing this amazing thing, which she's calling a year on the wild food diet. And I was immediately drawn to that, of course, being a forager. And also because so many of you and other people that I run into in my daily life ask me, what percentage of your food is foraged? And my answer to that is always, that's a really difficult question. (laughs) And it depends on the day. It depends on the year. It depends on my location. And it depends on everything else that I have going on. And so something that I'll often say is, well, are you working to buy your food or are you working to gather your food? And I like to try not to assign any shame to that, to either side of that, because it's, it is just life and the way that things work and what our needs are in the moment. So I'm really excited to talk to our guest today, Monica Wild, and to really hear how she is doing it on a 100% wild foraged diet. So without further ado, (laughs) I will introduce her. But first, (laughs) with just a little bit of ado, I forgot to say thank you to my patrons on Patreon for making this possible, supporting the podcast, because there are resources that have to go into that. And it's one of my favorite things to do. And I love bringing you stories 
of foragers and wild crafters from around the world. So if you too want to support the podcast and get exciting bonus interviews like the one that Monica and I are going to do right after this about the really cool testing she's doing because she's also a researcher on how her gut microbiome is changing on a 100% forage diet, then please go to the Wander School, sorry, patreon.com slash the Wander School and support the work for as little as five bucks a month and you can get all those cool bonuses. So now without further ado, welcome so much, Monica. Thank you for being here and hello. Hi, Abby, you're very welcome. And nice to speak to you. It must be um, pretty early where you are. Of course, I'm, I'm here in Scotland in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 1030 in the morning here and you're at 330 p.m., right? That's right. On a slightly overcast but warmish summer day. Oh, yay. Yeah, it is summer here as well when we're recording And we're supposed to have the remnants of a tropical storm coming through later. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, that's another reason why I'm so excited to talk to you because I've never been to your part of the world at all. And so I think it will be super exciting for listeners who are in um, the US to get a little taste of where you are. And hopefully we'll also get some listeners from your part of the world who We'll find the podcast and maybe learn a little bit more about this part of the world. So yay for connections and new friendships. So Monica, I was reading your bio. I've read it a couple times now and it's hard to take it in because like me, you have an extremely varied background and you do so many things. And I always love meeting foragers who are also scientists because I think it helps kind of distill the myth that all foragers have to be like these people who are kind of like cave people (laughs) and like never bathe and just like don't have jobs and you know are able to just spend all their time in the woods which like who wouldn't love to do that but but I think there's a lot of stereotypes about foragers and so meeting other scientists who are foragers and people who have jobs I think it helps put the word out there that like anybody can do this, which is, I think, an important message and something we're going to talk about later. So could you please tell the listeners about yourself and your background? Gosh, um, where to start? Well, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's been an interesting life so far. I, I mean, I've really had a you know, love affair with the, with the plants ever since I was a small child. Um, I grew up in East Africa and then a couple of other countries. You know, my dad worked for various different governments as a um, legal advisor. And, you know, so as the eldest of five children, um, as long as you came in for meals and bedtime, there were so many of us that you, we had a lot of freedom to be outside. And um, so I grew up there and... You know, there were a couple of really influential women in my life who carried on telling me about the plants at different stages while I was growing up. And in actual fact, originally, I didn't um, do science and herbalism at all. I didn't even know you could. I'd wanted to be a vet when I was a child. Um, But coming out of school, you know, it was in the early, early 1980s. And 
you know, my dad thought, you know, my dad's advice was, you know, don't do anything expensive, you, you know, until you get, you know, you're just going to get married. <laughs> so, <laughs> what advice I'd give my daughter, needless to say. <laughs> so I did, I did quite a lot of arty stuff. I worked in a theatre and did some screen printing T-shirts and ended up in doing graphic design. But when I moved to Scotland in 1995, I met a dear friend of mine, Dee Atkinson, at Napier's, which is a fantastic herbal house that's been going consistently without a break since 1860. We've just celebrated the 161th anniversary. Wow. And I realized that you could be a herbalist, which was a revelation to me and absolutely, you know, one, you know, wonderful news because it means that you get to work with something that's your passion all the time instead of just saving it for weekends. And that, so the long and the short of it is, is that, you know, I'd, I'd always had a passion. I'd always been very self-taught, but I eventually ended up doing a master's degree in herbal medicine. And um, nowadays I just specialize in um, Lyme disease and co-infections. In fact, it's kind of broadening a little bit because, you know, I do work with some um, medical doctors and quite often if the antibiotics aren't working for some complex um, antibiotic resistant um, infection, um, I'm quite often referred those as well. So it's, it's been very interesting. But for many years, I mean, I think, I mean, I've, I've foraged myself forever. And certainly when my children were small, the holidays, we'd go up to the highlands of Scotland and it'd be like, let's see how long we can eat before we have to go to a shop. Um, they've never forgiven me. No. <laughs> Just joking. Um, I, think I must have started teaching formally somewhere around 14 or 15 years ago. You know, I was a single parent with three small children. So I was always looking for another way to earn a little bit of extra money. And a friend of mine who did some art projects with children for the Forestry Commission, she had a project with um, the Tibetan community where the Forestry Commission were trying to encourage people who had moved here to go out and enjoy the woods that we, you know, we have some amazing woods and forests in Scotland. And, um, you know, very open access. We have the right to roam. It's, it's a marvellous place to be if you love nature. And um, they wanted something to do with the adults. And so that's when I started teaching foraging. So I've been teaching foraging a very long time at, at weekends. In fact, this is the first year that I haven't been doing a lot of teaching because I'm on, this, on my wild food diet and also writing about it and recording it. So between the, the, the Lyme Clinic and the foraging and the staying alive and the writing, there isn't a lot of time to do a lot of other courses as well. But I'll be back to it next year because I just love introducing people to nature, to Gaia. Mm -hmm. And just watching their mouths open as they go, oh, my God, what an amazing world we live in. <laughs> oh, yay. I love hearing that because that is the, the thing that gives me so much joy, too, and fulfillment in my work. Can you talk for just a minute about that right to roam in Scotland? Because I find it fascinating, and I think a lot of people in the States will just be flabbergasted <laughs> i know yes you know you literally in in scotland and this doesn't apply to in england you know in england there is the law of trespass and i think they're trying to tighten it up even more but in scotland for many years we've had 
you know, the right to roam. And what that means is that except within the immediate vicinity of somebody's house, you know, like you can't just go into somebody's garden that's right next to their house. But when you're talking about the woods and the fields, large estates, heaths, heathers, farmland, you know, you have the right to walk there and to cross there. And you also, within that, are able to pick and gather plants and mushrooms. You're not allowed to dig anything up by the root without the owner's permission, but you are allowed to forage and you don't have to ask permission to be on the land. Within the code of conduct, you also have responsibilities not to leave gates open. If you have a dog, to have it on the lead, you know, around sheep so that there's no worrying. And also, you know, when you're harvesting you know, any wild food, not to be greedy and to be sustainable. But that also extends to wild camping as well. And the definition here of wild camping is not, you know, rolling up in your car, hogging all the, the, the laybys and sleep, you know, sleeping in the back of your car. And <laughs> it's actually, you know, getting out with a backpack and leaving, you know, parking up somewhere and hiking. And then you can just pitch a tent for the night and, you know, camp anywhere. We also have an amazing... Um, chain of bothies which are little huts where anybody can rock up at a hut and make themselves at home and light a fire and take shelter and again you know there are you know there are you know principles where you'll also leave some firewood behind you just don't use up every resource as well but it means we have incredible freedom in Scotland to explore our countryside here and we have some amazing places to visit you know incredible mountains really fresh water, co- incredible coastal scenery. We're very, very, very lucky. And, yeah. you know, I really do appreciate how privileged we are because I know in a lot of other parts of the world, you cannot go anywhere without looking down the barrel of a gun. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, that gives me hope for the world <laughs> just to hear how things are there. And it sounds like... The land there is actually pretty similar to where I am in the mountains of North Carolina with the rivers here. And I, I definitely feel very grateful and blessed to be here. But yeah, on that note, will you tell us a little bit more, go into a little bit more detail about what, what the land, what the habitat is like there? Um, well, it's quite varied. So I'm, I'm in the what's called the central belt, which is a little belt across the bottom part of Scotland where most of the major cities are, you know, Edinburgh on one hand and Glasgow on the other, the east and the west. So I'm literally in the middle, about just over an hour from the coast on either side. But then if I head north, you know, within an hour, I'm up in the mountains as well. And, you know, around the central belt, you've got a lot of the large old rivers and alluvial plains with the, you know, very fertile central belt. And as you go further and further north, you've got higher, craggier mountains and scrublands and, you know, heather moors and heath habitats, which are lovely. But if you go down to the coast, um, you have, you know, um, incredible marshes where you've got a lot of species of succulents. So at the moment, I'm living off a lot of samphire, sea blight, orac, sea arrow grass, sea aster, because of course, land when the you know, in the middle of the summer now, inland, the plants are just producing flowers. That's where all their energy is going to the flowers. So a lot of the leaf is dry and bitter mm-hmm. and really tasteless and pithy. So the succulents are where the greens are at at the coast at the moment. 
Mm. Um, if you go over to the west coast, you've got a lot of islands let, nestled up against the side of Scotland. And we have our own rainforest. We actually officially have rainforest on the west coast of Scotland, which is, um, you know, these forests of ancient oak, which are dripping with lichens and bromeliads and mosses. Quite incredible. You think it's only in the Amazon, but we do have official, you know, recognised rainforest here in Scotland as well. Wow. Oh, that sounds amazing. I'm going to have to come visit. <laughs> Definitely. Yes, I would love that. When I'm foraging, you know, particularly as the seasons change, I need to actually be able to travel over different habitats. Mm-hmm. Our ancestors wouldn't have been just rooted to one place. People would have made camps. It's quite interesting when you, when you look at where a lot of the ancient Neolithic sites are or the, and the Mesolithic sites before them, where they are, because you can see that towns have built up over where people's ideal camps would have been. But people would have had sort of a, you know, one or two major summer camps and one or two major winter camps. And then from those, they would have made little excursions as in, they call it the sort of daisy chain, because you kind of make petals going out in different directions, foraging. That is so great. You know, although I couldn't do it by foot here, because I do have a van, I kind of daisy chain out here. You know, I go down to the coast and pick all the coastal things that I need. I go into the, up into the forests. Um, We've got the early chanterelles are out now and charcoal burners today. Mm -hmm. And... uh, you know, but then you can also head down into the lowlands as well, because you need to have that, that variety through the seasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hungry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really good point. So I think that is something that a lot of people probably wonder about is, is it possible to actually sustain yourself on 100% wild foods? So you're proving that it can be done. And you're documenting it, which I love. So can you tell us more about how you're doing it? And maybe I think you alluded to this when we talked the last time, but that maybe some of what we think to be true is not necessarily true about the nutrients that our bodies actually need. Yes, it's really interesting. Well, I'm, I'm eight months into it at the moment, so two thirds of the way through. And I don't suppose I'll really have a full overview and until the end of the year when I've completed the year and also gone through and a lot of the results that I've been you know, documenting, particularly the, um, the microbiome results, which we're going to talk about in the extra part for patrons later. But I, I think there are certain things that did surprise me as I went along. And, um, and certain things I also had to accept as well. Before I started, I must say that I was mainly living on a fairly vegetarian diet. But one of the things that became immediately apparent was that I would have to eat meat. Mm. Um, so I have been eating wild meat along with the, you know, the vegetables as well. You know, you could probably do it veg- as a vegetarian in other parts of the world, but you couldn't do it in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, that has had to be part of it. And, you know, there, there are surprises. I mean, one of the things that I thought there would be would be a lot more available roots as carbohydrates to get through the winter. But that was quite shocking how few roots are actually available in Scotland as well. 
unless wow. you've you know unless you've got metal teeth and can chew through wood <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the woody ones nuts have been really important as as they were when you'd go back and look at archaeological sites in scotland um, we would never have been able to colonize scotland without hazelnuts for example and when you look at the archaeology there are these middens of you know huge piles of hazelnut shells where families, um, you know, small tribes and families would have got together at the end of the summer, um, especially near the Western Isles, where a lot of the, the hazelnuts are. And in fact, they see, they can track that they actually went from island to island and then brought things back with them in, I presume, sort of some type of canoe or coracle. But I love the idea of the fact that, you know, by the time you got to my age, you probably didn't have to do all the climbing of the trees and wandering around. You got to sit cracking nuts and cracking jokes and keeping an eye on the kids and just cracking nuts all day. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad that you shared that. I mean, one, I think it's interesting to see this comparison because here, like in the southeastern United States, we have shell middens, you know, from the various sea creatures that were eaten. And there you have hazelnut middens. So I love that comparison. And I'm curious, can you go deeper into that? Why you needed the meat being there and why you might not need it if it were somewhere else? I, I recently got a, um, a lovely copy of a book from South Africa, which covers Namibia and the Kalahari and things like that, called People's Plants. And when I was looking through the edible roots section and edible tubers section, you know, you have people holding yams the size of a baby. (laughs) And I'm looking at those thinking, oh, what would I give for a yam or a tuber the size of a baby? (laughs) Because here, you know, the biggest you know, roots and tubers that we found were burdock, um, Mm -hmm. which is very difficult to dig out. But, (laughs) you know, I can understand why commercially people grow them in tubs. Yes. And then things like pig nuts. I mean, pig nuts are absolutely delicious, but they're about the size of a hazelnut. Uh You know, it's a forager's legend that you can find one as big as a golf ball. Well, I'm just curious, when you talk about pig nut, what, what plant are you talking about? Conopodium majus. Okay. And is that, I don't, that sounds familiar to me. Umbilifer. So it's in the wild carrot family. Oh, okay. And it's quite, quite small, but it's, it's really, it's a really interesting plant because it doesn't have a, um, a root tuber that goes straight down from underneath like a carrot. It knows, it seems to know that that's exactly where a wild animal is going to look trying to dig up its precious root. So as soon as, it, as, soon as the root, you know, hits the, the ground, it, it wiggles its way away from the shoot above it and then goes, you know, wiggles away laterally and then it'll go down and under a root and round a stone and wriggles away a little bit more. And then it produces this tuber um, from, which the, from which they will sprout next year. So you, have to, you can't ever dig directly below it. You have to trace it and see where it's going and then dig it out as well. Although I have found a much more efficient way of doing it with a Korean homie, which is a type of like little hand hoe. 
to, oh. you slice back the turf and peel it back and then pickle the, pickle the nuts out. Oh, wow. That is super interesting. But um, it can, you know, it can take an, it can take a good hour to find enough to make a, a very small side for a meal mm. and then probably about another hour if you want to scrub them and peel them. <laughs> you know, yeah, so. I, I dream of baby-sized tubers and footballs. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. <laughs> so, so you're saying... Winters are cold here. Uh-huh. You need energy. Yes. And if you're not getting the energy from carbohydrates then you need to go a bit keto, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're saying that's why you needed the meat because there aren't actually that many large roots there. There are not many large roots. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, of course, once farming started, people would have grown and harvested grain to get them through the winter. Mm-hmm. Bread is, after all, a seasonal product. Yeah. We tend to think of, you know, just asparagus and strawberries as being in or out of season, but bread has a season. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, if people come to me and they say, well, you know, I had Weetabix for breakfast every day and I had a sandwich for lunch every day and pasta for supper every evening. And I did that for 20 years, 365 days of the year. And now I'm gluten intolerant. It's like, no shit. (laughs) 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 You know? Yeah, demands that we eat, you know, variety. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think I think that's so important. I'm really glad that you mentioned that because, unfortunately, I think that most quote unquote civilized cultures (laughs) have just gotten so far from like what is actually seasonal eating, Mm. you know, and you're hyper involved in seasonal eating at this point so um but i can totally see why grain became attractive yeah so you know people started to to farm it but of course the you know the varieties were very different and it's really interesting because at the moment all the grasses are coming into seed yeah you know we're looking at these grasses with different types of seed thinking ooh, you know let's let's experiment what can we do with those and I found recently a paper on Ohalo 2, which was a um, site, I think, on the shores of um, either the Dead Sea or Galilee. And I think it was Galilee, the Lake Galilee. And 23,000 years ago, which is a good 12,000 years before farming was even thought of at all, people were gathering, you know, not just wild wheat and wild oats and wild barley, but a whole load of the small grain grasses as well. I think about 150 different species from what I remember. So, you know, people were taking advantage of grains and cereal crops way, way, you know, way, way back and grinding them. Yeah. So at the moment, I'm starting to um, gather interesting looking grass heads and um, save them up to experiment with some of the flowers. Oh, but right now, what I, you know, we've just come into sugar season <laughs> and not having any, had any fruit for months. I think the last of our carefully preserved windfall wild apples, some, you know, we get feral apples and crab apples and ones that have been to bread, you know, small little hard things. Mm-hmm. I think the last of the feral apples ran out in March. 
So there's been absolutely no fruit for months. Oh my gosh. I am cramming wild strawberries and blaeberries in like there's no tomorrow. I believe it. (laughs) And of course, you know, nature lets us overdose Uh when she knows that she's going to then take it away. (laughs) Yep. The the trouble is now that because we have food in the shops um, and there's no breaks on the mechanism at all, um, we're able to overdose on things in a way that we never were able to before because, you know, it would be gone. Yeah. In the last sort of, I think in the last six days, picked about two, two kilos, which would be four and a half pounds of wild strawberries. Mm-hmm. But I know that in a week or two's time, that'll be it, you know, a fleeting yeah. treasure. Yeah, that's, that's my life. <laughs> <laughs> Except I wish I had more time because I'm always like, oh, the berries, I might get to them this one day and that might be it for the whole season, you know, depending on where you are. Like if you're somewhere and you don't live close to where they are and then you come upon them, like service berries and mulberries are one for me that I harvest. I'm originally from Ohio and so I'll go back there and visit and they grow I know the places because I lived there for over 20 years of my life. And so I go there and I'll forage them and I'll freeze them. But then I get back to North Carolina and I'm like, where do I go? (laughs) And there's a couple places, but it really has struck me, you know, which I'm sure is something huge for you. Just like that sense of place and learning where the things are. I think that's one of the hardest things for people when they're really wanting to get into foraging, like it takes years to learn where certain things are. And then once you know where they are, you can go back to them. And I feel like that's pretty magical. It creates deep connection with the places that we live. And I love that daisy chain idea. That is so cool. And I'm, yeah, thank you for sharing that bit of history with us. That is very interesting. And um, so can you share with us for you, maybe what an average week looks like as you're trying to do this diet? I mean, I know some of your week is taken up with writing and probably researching, but as far as the foraging and processing goes, like how much of your week is taken up with that? And what are the tasks that are involved and how much are you traveling and how, how long do each of those things take? Yeah. Well, I, I'm a, I do I do clinic two days a week, Monday and Wednesday. So those days I don't get out at all until mm. end of the day. So on those days, it's possible, it's only really possible to collect things that are sort of closer to home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that of course is an area I know extremely well. You know, I know where I know where the mushrooms are, where they're likely to come up, I know where the blaberries are. I know which trees are likely to produce something. So a walk in the evening will, you know, will do that. And um, I'm also on the edge of, you know, four acres of, you know, organic wild. I I hesitate to call it a garden (laughs) around my house because um, there's a tiny bit of mown lawn in front. But, you know, (laughs) to most other people, it looks like a complete jungle. Yeah. But um, when I moved in and built, when we built the house some 11 years ago now, what I just did was to create habitat and then let the plants get on with it by themselves. 
So there is a you know reasonable amount. You know, if I need some sorrel or if I need some hogweed shoots, mm. um, you know, I can I can go out and get those. If I need some dandelions, I can go out and get those quite easily. But then on the days when um, I'm not tied down with with work, foraging has become very very much more focused. Mm-hmm. because you don't really have the time just to wander around experimentally. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to really focus on where the food is and go and do a, a, a pretty big pick mm-hmm. because otherwise you would need to be out and moving around every day. So there'll be days like, right, okay, today I'm going to the coast. I'm going to this particular marsh. I know where the tide is and I'm going to pick the, you know, the succulents, as I said earlier, the, you know, samphire and all the rest of it. And, you know, and I will pick a lot, you know, never so much that I endanger the colonies there, but I go to places that I know where there, there is abundance and very few other people pick a lot here anyway. Or it will be the fruit, you know, very specifically that churchyard where they have a proliferation of wild strawberries, go to that and then after that to this place and, you know, very focused. I've got keeping an eye out you know, how the hazelnuts are starting to mature. There's a, there's a woodland that I know where there's a lot of hazelnuts mm. and I have to be very sure not to miss that, the, you know, the fruiting in that particular place. Yeah. So, um, and sometimes you discover new places completely by accident. But I think also the longer you forage, the more that you can look at Google Earth and go, ah, I've got a pretty sure bet on that place. Because you start to recognize, you start to be able to read the landscape. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can, you can look, um, you know, you can be driving around and you can just see a certain type of terrain with a certain type of plant mix, a certain, certain trees that go with it. And you know who likes living there. Yeah. It's no different to driving through a city and driving through a really posh part of town and then driving through a really run down part of town and making judgments oh. about might be going on in those areas you what type of restaurants you might find in those areas you know you're going to find um you know hester blumenthal or whatever in the posh part of town and you're going to find you know kentucky in the other yeah so it's a bit you know it's a little bit like that as well you start to recognize habitat um Mm. very very quickly and easily and i think you also develop a kind of x-ray vision and certainly with places that you know because um and with the fungi because you're actually, you know, when you, when you get to know fungi particularly well, and, and I've eaten a lot more fungi than I expected I would be eating mm-hmm. all year round on this. Wow. And, you know, with the fungi, you get to have a feel for where the mycelia is under the earth. And it's a little bit like one of those architect's drawings where you can switch layers on and off to see different levels of a building, except you're going onto the ground. And you have this sort of like vision of, you know, where the mycelia spreads from different trees according to what you found year after year. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. And then once you start to recognize those patterns, you sometimes start to be able to imagine those patterns in new areas. And of course, once you, once you find what you're looking for, you never forget. It's a different part of your memory to where are my car keys. Mm-hmm. It definitely is. And what did I come into this room for? Yeah. You can find it. You can find, I remember there's a place in, um, uh, up near Aberfeldy, which has really, got a really beautiful, incredible gorge. But driving back from there one day, my partner needed to stop. Nature called. 
<laughs> and while he was obeying nature, I, you know, I, I, I heard this yell. And through the other side of a forestry fence, there was a giant porcini, almost wow. illuminated by a sort of, you know, star, you know, starstruck shaft of light. So we went round and, and um, eventually managed to, to, to find, find it on the other side and explored that forest. But I didn't go back to that forest for about six or seven years. It's not near us at all. And the part that we'd explored, there were no paths to it because the main track went very far away. You had to double back a long way to get around the fences and to get into that wood. And what I found going back, trying to find it again, was that you suddenly end up, you know, you're in plantation, old, you know, old plantation forest, but there's no signposts. There's lots of rows of trees which look very similar. But if you stop trying to think about where you're going and you literally just let your feet take you, you will go back to the exact spot where you found food. It's like it's like a really primal Stone Age part of our memory, the ability to find food again. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, I'm I'm super glad that you shared that. Wow. Do you have any idea off the top of your head, like an estimate of how many species of mushrooms that you've been harvesting? Oh, over the course of a year, probably eat somewhere between 40 and 50 species. Oh my God. That's amazing. And like you, you said that you've been... And all of those will be closely related, you know, like the Rustula family, for instance. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you said you've been surprised at how many mushrooms and through the different seasons so like were you even harvesting mushrooms in the winter well i froze a lot of mushrooms to okay. during the winter gotcha so frozen and pickled chicken mm. woods, dryad saddle oyster mushrooms um didn't pickle any oysters but you know cooked and frozen dried oyster mushrooms as well yeah and there was frozen frozen porcini and i also pat dry and powder a lot of porcini and the other boletes mm. you know you can always you know if you've got powdered mushrooms and a few strands of dried seaweed you can always knock up a soup pretty easily yeah yeah i love that just thinking of different ways to cook things and so i've always been curious about pickled mushrooms i've never tried it are you pickling them raw what we normally do is to cook them in a little bit, cube, cut them into cubes, and then cook them up in a mixture that is 50% vinegar and 50% salt brine at about 3% salt, you know, like seawater. And it kind of depends a little because I make all my own vinegar and that's sometimes a little weaker. So sometimes I'll make them, if I feel that the vinegar is a little weak, I'll make it a bit stronger. But just boil the mushrooms in that um, until they're just al dente. Um, but what that does is it helps to sterilize them. Mm. And then I pack them into jars and, you know, let, let them dry off a little, but pack them into jars and then add olive oil. And most of these were pickled last year before I thought about following the wild food diet. So mm. there has been some, you know, olive oil available from, you know, obviously if you eat the pickles, you're not going to throw the oil away. Right. <laughs> In the rules that I made up for myself, you know, one of the things was I wouldn't waste anything from last year as well. Yeah. You know, so there were a few jams and things which would have had some sugar in, but, you know, certainly nothing, you know, weren't ever going out then and buying any more sugar or jam or anything like that. 
Right. And so the, the oil from the pickles has been eked out very carefully mm. because there's actually very little fat in the, in the di- wild food diet in Scotland, certainly very little fat, which is curious because I was eating meat. And when you listen to people who are talking about like paleo diets, um, people are talking about, you know, diets that are high in meat and high in fat. Uh-huh. But in fact, in the wild here, there's not a lot of fat. Right. Yeah, really you're isn't. saying because the animals are more lean because they're wild? Animals are a lot more lean because they're wild. Mm-hmm. And although they might have a little bit of fat at the beginning of the winter, they use it up very, very quickly as they go through the winter. Right. You know, and we had a period of um, 40 days of snow on the ground here. Mm, um, wow. The, the deer were in sort of quite, you know, poor condition. Yeah. So, um, you know, so those little bits of eked out olive oil were, you know, huge, huge bonus. Otherwise, we'd have had to have done a lot more hunting, you know, squirrels and things like the squirrels have a lot of fat on them. Yeah. So, so are so you... It's a joy to get to the spring <laughs> when all the plants started to come back to be able to not eat so much meat again. And my, I'm, you don't mind me broaching a delicate subject, my bowels were very glad of it as well. <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> so, so during the winter, you were eating mostly things that you had preserved from the year before. A lot of the, a lot of things were preserved from the year before. Yes, I used gum tree, which I think is like Craigslist over where you are, um, where you can basically get cheap household appliances. So, got another fridge, oh, fridge freezer, mm-hmm. and um, which has just got nothing but all the wild the wild things in just so that there would be enough storage right and you know certainly in the in in the northern hemisphere a lot of our summers would have been spent not just enjoying the food but putting it away for the winter as well yeah but a lot of plants a lot of plants are out during the winter even in the snow Mm -hmm. you know there are things like for instance um pink purslane which is related to your minus lettuce uh-huh. And you don't really see that in the summer. Mm-hmm. But as soon as the buttercups and the grasses die down in November, it's go it's like has its day in the sun. It actually starts growing in November. So you can always find it over the winter as yeah. long as you're in places where it's a little bit sheltered. And again, back to the coast in December, you know, will you know, where it's a warmer climate and you'll get things like Alexander's. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and at the Alexander's roots were very, very welcome. Wow. Are you, when you say Alexander's, are those in the carrot family as well? They are in the carrot family as well. Smolium olustratum, I believe. Mm. Yeah, we have some Alexander's here. This is a good, good moment to remind people to only ingest anything they have 100% positive identification about because the carrot family is one of those weird families that has a lot of delightful, delicious edibles and also some extremely poisonous plants in it. So make sure of your identification. <laughs> so would you say that you are foraging pretty much every day at this point? Um, I would say every second day. Every second day. Okay. And then how I'm much so, of... Some days, if, we, if, if, if I've done a big pick, you know, could stretch it to, to three or four days. Um, but, you know, that's because of modern refrigerators. Yes, <laughs> I believe that. 
And then how much of your time is spent processing and or cooking? Processing probably a full day. I mean, it's done in sort of bits here and bits there, but the equivalent of a full day a week. Gotcha. Drying and, I mean, but, you know, the dryer tends to go on, you know, most evenings. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I live with two other people here as well. So we're, you know, everybody's bringing a little bit of something in as well. Again, at the moment, the dryer is full of flowers. Oh. You know, um, we've got, you know, things on, things being brewed and um, flowers, flowers being preserved for teas. I thought I would miss coffee because I used to wake up every morning to a cup of coffee and then get up and have another one. So coffee's been off the menu, but I've really been enjoying all the herbal teas. You know, which are just mixes of, there's never any formal recipe. They're just mixes of all, you know, all sorts of things that we've gathered over the year from, you know, the beech leaves that do not get blown off in the winter. You know, love beech leaves and even birch twigs. Oh. Birch twigs make a lovely tea. And then, you know, rose petals or water mint or mm-hmm. rose bay willow herb, which I think you call fireweed. Mm-hmm. And I think they've all been more must be doing me a power of good because I've certainly been feeling really healthy. That is so great. Great as well. I put on a lot of weight um, over the last two years of doing intensive clinic and sitting down and then during lockdown, not getting out as much teaching. Right. Um, so I've lost, you know, lost a lot of weight as well. So I feel really good on it. That's great. If I'm not organized about the cooking, then I can have periods where my, I know that my blood sugar is a bit low and you can't really skip meals because it's when, you, when you haven't got a lot of calories um, without your body sort of rebelling. Yeah. Cooking, well, cooking really, how much time do we spend cooking? It d- depends because I, I've been cooking since I was about 14. My um, parents split up and my dad got custody of us, so I was cooking for a family of six. Wow. <laughs> I learned to cook pretty quickly and we were in Malawi at the time there was a a war on in Mozambique so the gorillas very often blew up the railways and that's the fighting gorillas not the hairy ones right you know we would have shortages of things so I was used to the fact that you know you can never follow a recipe from start to finish because Mm -hmm. there's always some ingredients missing yeah so I'm very good at being able to throw a lot of different stuff in a pan and I think the the you know, the clue to it is to have, you know, really nice, fresh ingredients and also to have a couple of key condiments as well. I make my own, well, the closest thing to it would be sort of soy sauce, but mm-hmm. out of mushrooms by fermenting mushrooms in brine. And, um, and that releases, you know, a lot of that sort of really, you know, the dark umami flavours. Mm-hmm. And I also every year make an elderberry pontac um, with sort of spiced elderberries, which, you know, the berries with, you know, particularly with meat, you know, would always help you to digest as well. Those sorts of things really help with the flavours. And of course, there's so many wild spices out there as well that you can substitute. Elecampane for ginger and um, hogweed seed for, um, that's not the giant hogweed, that's the common hogweed seed. Um, and you may have a different name for it, but not the one that's going to burn your skin. But the, um, the seeds of that are very like coriander or cilantro, as you'd call it. Nice. Yeah. Well, anybody who's just joining us, just reminding you that we're here with Monica Wilde to 
does many, many things. <laughs> and right now is telling us about her year on the wild food diet, which is just fascinating to me. And thanks again to patrons on Patreon and make sure to join us there, support the work and get the bonus interview where we're going to talk about the amazing research that Monica is doing along her year testing her gut microbiome to see how it is and has been changing with that wild diet which I cannot wait to hear about. <laughs> and that is at patreon.com slash the wander school. So gosh, I can think of so many questions I want to ask you because I just want to know how to do it myself. But I think along those lines, I, I really liked a point that you made earlier about back in the day when people did eat more wild foods or all wild foods, it would be common that as you aged, you would be the one sitting there doing things like shelling nuts and doing more of the processing while other people went out and harvested. And it's a point that I really like to remind people of as they're getting into foraging, because I think it can be extremely overwhelming when you're first learning about foraging. The fact that this wasn't really ever an independent activity. And I think that's a big part of why it seems so overwhelming to people um, and definitely overwhelming to me still, even as a seasoned forager, that, you know, it's, it's not just finding the hours to go out and forage things and getting to the places to do it. It's also the time spent, I mean, you're saying a whole, the equivalent of a whole day a week, just processing those things. And then there's also the cooking time. So it's really not reasonable for most people to do this. Oh, I, um, I mean, how many hours do most people, how many hours a week do most people watch television or Netflix? Yes. Yeah. I think that is a great point. It's a question of choices and, you know, community, community is important. Um, you know, we're not solitary beings. And, you know, you might come back with a whole load of acorns that need to be shelled, you know, several kilos of acorns that need to be shelled. But if you've got a group of friends sitting around a table as you're doing it or mm -hmm. cleaning mushrooms as you're doing it, you know, it's, it becomes a pleasure. And yeah. it allows us to actually interact with each other, talk to each other, tell each other stories, um, discuss the state of the world, put the world to rights instead of just wasting it with, you know, passive entertainment. Yes. Yeah, I, I love that. Thank you for One sharing thing that. Thing really important to me on this Wild Food Year has been the incredible support from people who, you know, some of whom I've known, but some who I haven't known as well, particularly in the winter when things were getting a bit sort of lean mm -hmm. and then, you know, times where, you know, I'd put on put what I was doing on Instagram and say, you know, oh, here's more brown food, you know, <laughs> <laughs> acorn gruel. And, you know, quietly in the post, um, I would start to get little packages of food or somebody would, there was a lovely lady in, in Wiltshire who I have never met, you know, who contacted me saying, I, you know, I found loads of wild walnuts last year. I have surplus. Please may I send you some? Mm -hmm. And um, And other foragers that I know who, 
you know, gave very generously of their own supplies, unasked. Yeah. And that was really lovely. And that has really come about in the sort of last, I would say, really since about 2015, mm-hmm. when a group of us who had reached out and got to know each other had this sort of common interest, actually got together and founded a group for people who teach foraging. Mm-hmm. And it started off as a very jokey idea over a few drinks that we were going to form an intergalactic federation of foragers. <laughs> it ended up as the, associ- as, a, as, an associ- as the Association of Foragers. We have about 120 members in a number of different countries, all of whom are people who are interested in teaching foraging, keeping the old ways alive, and have a common vision for sustainability and foraging. Mm. And we meet up once a year. You know, we, we find some place out in the, the boonies where, you know, we can, this year we were camping in the Lake District. And there's become a lot of interaction between this group, you know, this virtual community of people. And that's been incredibly supportive. Wow. So is that, did you say that is just in that region or that is all over the world? We have some American members as well. Ooh. I send you a link for the website later. But yes, you please. Find somebody who'll teach foraging in your area. Yes. Yay. I'm so glad to hear about that. That is great. Yeah. So I really just, you know, if people take anything away from this, one thing that I would like for y'all to take away is that foraging is possible. And in in many different ways and that please make it a community activity because that's the way it's supposed to be and it makes it a lot easier and it does really create lasting community and then we feed each other and get our needs met so I'm really glad that you mentioned that and I think that people shouldn't be too worried about you know, whether or not they, they can do it and too overwhelmed at the beginning. Because I, you know, I always say to people on my walks, if you can tell the difference between an iceberg lettuce and a Savoy cabbage, you have the mental capacity to do this. Yes. It's just a question of taking them one by one and learning them. Yeah. And if you were a child growing up in a tribal society, you would know all the same species that an adult knows by the age of about six. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd be able to rattle off, you know, three, four, five, six hundred species by the age of six. And, um, you know, we've, we've just lost the ability to do that because, you know, our parents and our grandparents haven't taught us. But it will come back and you should mm-hmm. most definitely teach your children. Yes. So the yes. way not to be overwhelmed is to just pick a new plant every week and just spend one week with that plant. Sit with it, talk to it, taste it, touch it get to know it, cook with it, find out everything you can about it, and then move on to another one the following week. And by the end of two years, that's another 104 plants that you know intimately. Wow. That's so great to hear you say that because that's the exact same thing that I teach people. So, (laughs) (laughs) But I love that. I don't say one plant a week, so that's a really good idea. I like... Just makes it attainable and reachable for people who are thinking it's a bit... Yeah. And when I'm teaching people foraging, it's also, I can't, you know, I've realized I'm not going to be able to teach them everything. And after about sort of, you know, 10 species in in detail, people are, so sometimes now I say to them, look, you know, I'm not actually going to teach you a lot about how to identify this plant or anything. 
you know, you can learn that, you know, I'll show you the basics and the key things about them. Mm-hmm. And you can learn that. But what I am going to do is tell you everything I know about every plant that we see so that you will be so mind blown. You will want to learn everything you can for the rest of your life about this incredible planet we live on. Oh, well, because learning does take time. You know, you can't take, you know, 57 years out of me and plug it into somebody in four hours, you know? Yes. So true. And I think that this could be a really good opportunity and moment to talk about something that we talked about before, which is your bigger mission or purpose in doing this. So do you want to share a little bit about that? Well, I think with the wild food diet, it's something that I have thought about for a very long time, because I mean, you would have had the same questions, Abby, you know, people say, you know, what percentage of your your food is, is wild. And also, could you survive for a year on a wild food diet? Mm-hmm. That is, that's the eternal question, isn't it? Right. And so, you know, it's something I've been thinking about for years, you know, could I do it? And then, you know, the kids have, kids have left home, so I've got no worries about, you know, feed, feed, feeding anybody else, and I, so I can do it. But also, once I started doing it, which, you know, for my, for my own interest, um, I was given the opportunity to publish my record of doing so. And I've got a book called The Wilderness Cure, which will be coming out next year, which documents this, this whole process that I've been through. And what I realized was, was that I had a wonderful opportunity that, you know, with something that's curious and not done by many people, you know, this, this wild food diet, of drawing people in to a story, but through which I could also talk to people about the things I really care passionately about, about what's happening with our planet and our relationship with Gaia. Mm-hmm. And that is that, I mean, you know, climate change isn't going to go away. But underneath that, you know, story is this whole huge desecration and pollution of the, the earth. And we forget that what we do to the outer ecology it's going to impact the inner ecology. Mm-hmm. A lot of the 21st century diseases and illnesses and conditions that we're seeing is a direct consequence of our trashing of the external ecology because we're not indivisible. We're not separate. We are part of it all. You know, every, every mouthful of air that you breathe in takes in the, the, the whole of the universe. If that's not too, too dramatic a way of saying it, you know, the, the, the spores, the, you know, the, the bacteria, the viruses, everything that's in the, in the, in the air. And, um, you know, if we carry on the way we are doing, we are going to make this planet, you know, totally un- un- uninhabitable for humans and unfairly take so many other species, more species with us. And, you know, when you look at it all, a lot of it for, to an individual, you know, particularly little, little guys like us, you know, it seems really overwhelming. But we do have more power than we think to change things. Mm-hmm. First of all, voting, voting, A, getting out and always voting and B, voting for the, you know, the right people. But, you know, governments are very short term and they need a lot of pressure and pushing. And, you know, petitions and writing to and marches, if that's what's needed. Mm-hmm. you know to make our hurt but also on a personal level you know we can mobilize because we have the power of the pound or you know in your case the power of the dollar 
You know, what, you know, companies and global corporations care more about than anything else is people spending money. Mm. And you can choose where you spend your money. You know, for example, if you don't choose to buy organically produced food, you're actually making a choice for farmers to use chemicals and pesticides and herbicides. You know, if mm. you choose to buy organic food, you are choosing to have land invested in that's isn't polluted with herbicides and pesticides. You know, if you buy local, you are choosing to support local farmers and local communities. If everything you buy is flown in from another country, well, you don't really know what your choice is, but you may well be choosing to exploit other people. You may be choosing to dam wild rivers for irrigating pecan nuts that grow in the Chihuahua Desert where they shouldn't, or, you know, avocados and almonds. You know, everything that you do has, has an implication. And, you know, once we're aware of that and make personal choices, if enough of us do that, we can change things. So I'll give you one example. You know, if we manage to somehow mobilize a month, you know, and in fact, we might even be able to get a dramatic impact in a week where everybody in, say, say for instance, we did it in Scotland. If we got everybody in Scotland for a whole month whenever they went to a supermarket to take their own containers, unwrap anything that wasn't biodegradable and leave it at the till where they just paid for it and take their stuff home in their own recycled boxes. The litter of all of that stuff that we don't want, that packaging we don't want, would build up so high at the tills, they wouldn't know what... Do you not think they would put pressure on their suppliers to instantly produce biodegradable packaging? You know, it's all possible. We have the technology. Mm. You know, you've got countries like Kenya who overnight banned plastic bags. You know, yeah. why, can't, why can't we take more action? Why are we waiting till 2035 to reduce yeah. our carbon emissions or 2050 to phase out single-use plastics? Yeah. No, we, we need to do it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, we, if we get together, if we talk to each other, if we plan, pass, you know, peaceful action, but nevertheless action. We can make it change just through where we decide to spend our money. Yeah. You know, if we all get fed up working a seven-day week like slaves to the dollar, well, let's all choose to have a day off again. Yeah. If everybody stops buying anything, whether it's locally or on Amazon or whatever, on a given day Mm -hmm. of the week that we all agree is going to be our day off, everybody's going to close down because nobody's buying on that day. We all get a day off. Yay! We can go foraging. Yeah, yes. Oh, thank you so much. You know what I mean? I mean, and the, you know, young people of today who know how to work, you know, social media, Facebook and Instagram and things where I'm still scratching my head as to where these messages came from. I'm sure I saw one pop up and I have no idea where it's gone now, you know, but people who are good at that, you know, put your power to, you know, to good, organize, organize movement by the people. Yeah. Because we can't wait on governments to do it. Yes. No Jedi. No Jedi. <laughs> yeah. 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 I always hesitate to be too political publicly, but I did have a realization the other day after, and I'm going to say it publicly right here. I started boycotting Amazon about a year ago. I had this realization because, you know, I'm working with the Cherokee and various other tribes and I was talking to my Cherokee friend and I was like, whoa, I just realized Amazon, (laughs) this huge company is named after a rainforest (laughs) and 
It is destroying the rainforest. <laughs> Think about all the fossil fuels and all of the plastic and everything that all of the resources that are being destroyed because of we need it right now. <laughs> I don't want to go to the store to get it. And... But even simpler basis, I mean, I haven't used aluminum wrap mm-hmm. tinfoil yeah. walking mm-hmm. for, I don't know, seven years now. You know, yeah. if I if I want to cook something where in the past I might have used aluminum wrap, mm-hmm. now I just either put a lid on it, you know, yeah. a clay pot with a lid on it, or a slow cooker, or I wrap it in large leaves or seaweed. Awesome. So uh, not you, only you yeah, don't not, need, you know, or clay. Right. That is amazing. So not only are you getting the nutrients from those leaves or seaweed, but you're also not introducing metals into your body that cause cancer and Alzheimer's and things. And when you look at something like aluminum foil, that Mm -hmm. some people use a bit of it every day, you know, what's involved in producing it? You have to strip mine bauxite, which means in, you know, some third world country, you've got to rape the earth of all of the topsoil and everything else to take this out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's then shipped somewhere. It's then heated to incredibly high temperatures using enormous amounts of energy and to be processed so that you can have a thin little bit of metal to wrap your sandwiches in once. Oh, yeah. come on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. We take, so much, we take so much of how we live now for granted. We really do. That's the way we've always done it. And, mm-hmm. if, you know, but if we really start to think and wake up, then a lot of stuff doesn't make sense. And we have alternatives. So, you know, in the book, what I want to do is to explore all of these alternatives. Yes. And, and cover, you know, not just foraging for food, but the fact that, you know, in, in one afternoon, you can make enough soap to last your entire family for the rest, for a whole year. You know, <laughs> don't have to go and buy stuff in plastic. Yeah. That's, you know, that's highly, highly mechanized with all the resources that go into that. Yeah. You know, there's so much you can do for yourselves. And it's fun doing it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we have to change focus because we're already over time, but that's fine. <laughs> I wonder this would happen. <laughs> Gosh, but it's just so interesting. And I can't wait to talk again. We are going to come back for sure and do another episode on Lyme disease and your research there. And, um, but there are a few things I definitely want to get to before we end. I want to talk to you about your favorite meals. And also people can find that pretty easily on your Instagram. So I would highly encourage everyone listening to check out Monica's Instagram account, which is Monica Wild with an E on the end. And the pictures themselves are lovely and very mouthwatering. <laughs> so is there one meal that you can think of that has really been your favorite or one you've had recently that you've just been so excited about? Gosh, it's it's hard to say what's a favorite because, of course, it changes. And the, right. the thing is, it's just as soon as you get tired of one thing, something new comes along as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the moment, it's just a simple dish of wild strawberries covered in burnt mm-hmm. syrup because we yeah. you know, there's been no sugar for such a long time. But then, you know, yesterday it was the delight of the first chanterelles coming back. Um, cooked oh. with wild garlic and a little bit of wild carrot leaf, like which is a little bit like parsley. And 
Oh, gosh, so many favourites. Um, seaweeds, for example. Mm-hmm. I love um, sea spaghetti. Ooh. And it and dries well, so it's a, you know, it's really easy to go to. And the Celts make great lasagna. You don't even need to have pasta sheets. You know, they make great lasagna, these young Celts. Through the winter, my favourite was definitely burdock. Mm-hmm. Because uh-huh. when I was longing for baby-sized tubers, um, burdock roots were the sort of the largest thing I could find. And I love the flavour of them. And I also love how good they are for us as well. You know, they're real, you know, blood cleanser, alterative, um, nourishing food. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, good for the liver, good for the lymph, you know, real blessing of a, of a plant. Yeah, so... Yeah. That's right on track. We were just going to talk about that. And um, because you're giving us this recipe that sounds so fantastic for burdock, dandelion, gnocchi. Can't wait to see that. So um, if you're listening to the somewhere other than at the Wander School website, go to thewanderschool.com to the blog where you'll find this episode as well as that recipe. And I super appreciate you for sharing that. So tell us, tell us about burdock. Well, burdock has very large leaves, which are handy for wrapping food and things in. Um, But you can also eat the leaf stems as well and the young shoots. So it flowers in its second year. And what you want to do is to actually to, to really to harvest the roots before they flower because they get very uh, woody after that. So normally I would dig them in the, in the fall and try to identify first year plants that have got the basal rosettes, but not the flowering stem. And I think in um, the States, you have both Arctium minus and um, Arctium lapa. Yeah, um, pretty much everywhere except I think possibly Florida. And traditionally, they would be used to make things like um, dandelion and burdock drink, which was a, probably the British equivalent of your sort of sarsaparilla root beers. Mm. So it was a non-alcoholic drink that a lot of people drank, and that would really clear out your body as well, mm. particularly if there were any skin things going on, like some of the old. Um, you know, scrofulas with swollen glands and nasty poxy things. But nowadays with eczema and acne and, Mm -hmm. you know, also any dry skin condition because they help to rebalance the oils in the body. You know, where if there's dryness in the body or dry stools, dry skin, you know, burdock helps to rebalance that. So they would, um, they were these like blood cleansing, blood purifiers, but burdock also works on the liver as well. So it's a, it's really lovely. And people would make a drink. People would use it for things like gout as well, because it breaks down excess uric acid. And it also has a little bit of bitterness. So that would help to get the digestive fluids going and, you know, and, and, and balance everything there. So, um, and, and highly nutritious, lots of um, minerals, lots of fiber, and quite a lot of protein in it really for, you know, for a, for a plant um, root. And B6, I think, it's got quite a lot of B vitamins in it as well. Other interesting things about it, the seed, which is used quite a lot in um, Chinese herbal medicine. It's quite diuretic and cleansing. And also the seeds have these little hooks on the end. So they actually inspired the inventor of Velcro, which means that given that it was used on astronaut suits, that it was one of the first wild plants to venture into outer space. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, 
I didn't know that. <laughs> cool. Okay. So I actually, one year I was digging burdock out of a friend's yard with a spade, I think, and jammed my ankle because they are so hard to dig out and they love to grow in compacted soil. So do you have any tips for digging them? Well, I tend to use a um, post spade, which mm. is for digging out, you know, that um, people use for digging fencing posts in, which is a very long and pointed spade. Mm. And most of mine, I would look for um, near the coast where the soil is a bit sandier as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's no easy way of digging out burdock. And sometimes you'll end up with a massive crater. Do fill it in afterwards. <laughs> yeah. As you try to persuade it to come home with you. But if you do, they're absolutely delicious. I mean, a simple way that I do them is just literally to grate them up mm. and um, then marinate them in a little bit of um, rosehip reduction with my mushroom soy sauce and then just um, stir fry them up Japanese style, you know, gobo style. But mm. the recipe that I'm going to give you is for making um, noki or noki, I think you said. Mm-hmm. Um, with dandelion roots and some nettle seeds in as well. Mm. Um, and you can use either plain flour or acorn flour and just make up some noki. And during the winter, they were the most satisfying things to eat. Wow. You know, on a cold day. Because, oh. <laughs> of course, there's no potatoes on a wild food diet. <laughs> yeah. So burdock has to take, burdock and dandelions have to take the place of potatoes carrots beetroot Mm -hmm. and all of the other things and um i've I've grown to really love them i don't mind the bitterness at all when i roast dandelion roots for instance i always drizzle a little bit of um birch sap syrup over them and they caramelize just beautifully definitely always be eating them over over some of the others yeah that sounds amazing i tend to pickle them. I have a recipe in my book, the Herbal Handbook for Homesteaders for pickled, super simple roots. That's something folks can do if they want something really easy. Do you tend to take that outer root bark off usually? Uh, It depends on the age of the roots. If they're quite young, I just give them a wee, you know, a little scrub and leave it Mm -hmm. on. But if they're quite old, um, I will peel it off. But I keep the peelings to make coffee. Ooh, that's a great idea. Nothing gets wasted. Yes. And sort of in that same vein, I know that you are excited to talk about what is ethical foraging. So can you give us a quick thought on that for you and your opinion? Yes. I mean, we we just have to be super conscious that we, you know, when we approach foraging, it's not as takers. Mm-hmm. As, as it's a reciprocal thing that we do with the earth you know we are you know when you're in a relationship with somebody who gives you you don't just take you give back mm-hmm. you know and in the relationship that we have with Gaia humans unfortunately have ended up very much as takers and not as givers you know givers as recipro- you know and giving back so remember that it's a reciprocal arrangement so if you're harvesting from an area, make sure that you go back there out of season and spread the seeds or replant some, you know, some saplings or seedlings in that area or fill the gaps in the hedges back. 
you know, think about things like that, you know, clear some of the undergrowth of some of the young, you know, smaller plants are trying to get through, you know, this shepherding or stewarding of the environment rather than, you know, garden. Yeah. And you also see now the rise of supply of wild foods to restaurants. And I think that chefs should be asking their suppliers what their investment plans are for the land. Because, you know, when you buy, when they're buying something from that's been farmed, some of the money is going back to the farmer to reinvest in the land. Mm-hmm. If you're buying wild foods from somebody who turns up with a basket of this or that and the other, what are they putting back? Yeah. You know, so if for, for people who are commercially wild harvesting, you know, I think they should also have a plan, you know, that they're willing to publish that shows what their relationship with the land is and that they are acknowledge that reciprocity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's on top of the simple things about, you know, don't be greedy, don't pick it all, be aware of other people. You know, those, those are, you know, really important. I'm sure you've talked about those before. But it's really, you know, for me, it's really acknowledge the fact that you need to give as well as take. Yeah, I like that. Thank you. I don't think that is stated very often. And for me, it's always really creating a relationship with the plant because I don't think you can ever truly know how prolific or how threatened the plant is unless you see it over and over again in its natural habitat. Yeah. Because in some, in some places, something will be really prolific, but in other places, hardly there at all. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that happens often where I live because I'm in one of the most biodiverse places in the world, you know, in the temperate rainforest, basically, here in the mountains. So yeah, really important to me to talk about that. So coming toward the end of our time here. Monica, what is the best way for people to find you and follow along on your journey? Um, well, I have Instagram and Twitter and, and a Facebook page. I think if you type Monica Wild, M-O-N-I-C-A-W-I-L-D-E into Google, you'll probably find me on, in, in most places. And I have got a website, monicawild.com, and I write a blog on Substack, wildmedicine.substack. So, um, yeah, and I try to post up pictures of what I'm doing and just sort of commenting on what I'm doing as I go along. Might be posting a little less later in the year as I get towards my book deadline, though. But then you can all go and buy the book next year. Yay! (laughs) I can't wait. I'm nervous about it at the same time. Yeah, I believe it. I've been there. It's, It's a rough one, but congratulations to you because it's one hard just to get there, you know, to get to the point where you've, I mean, it's a lot, a heck of a lot of work. And then also a lot of work to get to the point where somebody actually wants to publish your stuff. So (laughs) congratulations. And is there anything else that you want people to know or that you want to leave us with before you go? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Yeah, so much. (laughs) Uh, yeah, there, there, there's so much, but you know, you're in danger of having me on for another two hours. So I, <laughs> I think just, you know, I would just say to people that if you, if you haven't discovered the world of plants, you know, do, because there is, there's so much we have, we are given so many gifts and, you know, a life with the plants is, you know, does, does so much for us. I can't, I can't even begin to say how much, you know, you have to remember that they are, the world's great balancing force, 
Mm. The biggest difference between them and us is not that they're green and we we have red blood. You know, that's just the difference between magnesium and iron. But the biggest difference is that they're rooted in the ground and that they cannot run away. So when shit happens, they deal with it. You know, they produce this amazing um, wealth of biochemistry, which is, to me, it's a language rather than just a science. And they're constantly modulating the environment around us, which includes us as well. And, you know, it's a really rich and rewarding field to to find an interest in. That's kind of how I feel about that. (laughs) That's a great way to put it. Yeah. (laughs) On that note, (laughs) I think that's a great place to close. Just reminding everyone that you can get the awesome bonus interview we're about to record about Monica's research on how her gut biome has changed during her year on the wild food diet. Fascinating science. You can come and nerd out with us on Patreon and also support the work of getting the podcast out there along with all the other good work that's happening at patreon.com slash the wonder school and please like and subscribe to the podcast please share with your friends who you think are plant curious leave comments all that good stuff and please go out there and explore and spend some time with the plants today and every day But really what I most want to say is just a huge thank you to you, Monica, for being here and sharing your knowledge and sharing about your journey. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wander, Forage, and Wildcraft. Don't forget to check the show notes for all of the links from today's episode. Thanks so much to Tina and her pony for the use of their beautiful song, Medicine. I love hearing from all of you, so please leave me your comments. And if you like what you've heard, please rate and review this podcast and share with folks you know. You can keep learning and following my adventures on thewanderschool.com and the Wanderschool Facebook and Instagram pages. Happy wandering, foraging, and wildcrafting. Come on, everyone, and gather round. Listen to the soothing in this sound. I'm here to tell you that medicine don't come from a pill, it grows in the ground. The medicine.